Well, it's good to see you guys this morning. Welcome back to Community Church as always. I hope you've had a great week. Um, it's been a really full and blessed week of ministry here at Community Church, that's for sure. I mean, we've had uh, fellowships in people's homes. We've had community groups. We've had men's breakfast on Saturday. We had our third baptism last night, and it's just been a really amazing week of ministry here in the life of our young but but growing church. And so I just want you all to know that it's such a joy to be on this journey with you. It's such a real joy to fellowship with you and pray with you and worship and laugh and study God's Word and all of these things together with you. I just love the joy of Christ that's just bubbling up all over the place within our faith community. And so I'll tell you all uh, the same thing that somebody else told my wife earlier this week when she said, joy looks good on you. And so it definitely looks good on you. And I just pray that we never lose that joy, the joy of serving Christ. May we never allow the troubles of this world to, to affect us in a way that would cause us to lose our joy because serving the Lord Jesus Christ, whether it's here at Community Church or wherever you serve, should always bring you joy, right? Well, last week, Christ gave us a preview of what's to come when he returns, and he warned his disciples of the dark days that were going to be ahead of them by telling them that, look, the days will come when you're going to desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. That's in Luke chapter 17, verse 22. Now, John MacArthur said, we don't win down here. He said, we lose. They killed Jesus. They killed the apostles. We're all going to be persecuted. We don't win on this battlefield. We lose. But we win on the big one, the eternal one. And I'll speak to that just a little bit more later on in the message, because even so, even if that is true, it should not cause us to lose our joy in serving Christ. But the road ahead for the disciples is going to be a very difficult one for sure. Right, And just like it's going to be for any believer who fully denies himself and follows the Lord Jesus Christ, right? who would fully deny the distractions of this world. There are going to be many. There's no doubt about that. And we also know that those among us and around us who are spiritually blind are going to be shouting things like, look here and look there, as Jesus taught his disciples, right? But the truth is, Jesus said, don't go after them. In Luke 17, 23. In other words, don't go after any of those lesser joys in the world, right? Christ said, when I return, there's not going to be any need for you to go looking for me, right? I will appear in such a way where everyone can see me. That's Revelation 1, 7, Titus 2, 3, among others. And so therefore, Christ is about to tell his disciples, look, don't lose heart. Okay, don't lose heart here in Luke 18, 1. And so you got to wonder, how do we do that? If the distractions are coming, if it's going to be difficult, how do we not lose heart? I mean, in the case of the disciples, Christ was going to be leaving them very soon, and they're going to begin to feel some of those same pressures that Christ felt while here on earth. And so their faith, in other words, would soon have to be their practice. Okay? It would have to be their way of life because Christ wasn't going to be with them to lead the way, at least in a physical sense, right? So how in the world... Are these men going to keep from losing heart? Well, I think that one of the ways that you and I can do that today is if we don't lose our mind. 
we cannot lose heart if we don't lose our mind, right? And one of the ways that we can keep from losing our mind is to stop putting garbage into it, okay? Paul said in Romans chapter 12, verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 2, he says, set your mind on things above, not on things of the earth. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, he says, finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there's any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, meditate, think, on these things. Amen. Right? So the old saying is true. You've probably all heard it. Garbage in, garbage out. Right? So if we don't want to lose heart in our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, then what I've got to do is stop occupying my mind with the things of this world. I can't do that. Right? And as Christ is going to teach his disciples in our passage today, they're also going to need to sort of keep their heart in constant communication with God. And the way that they are going to do that, according to Christ, is through prayer, okay? Prayer, what it does is it conditions both our heart and our mind as we commune with God, okay? That's what prayer does. It's one of the things. Now, this idea of prayer that we're going to be talking about today is not uncommon, right? I mean, I would say most people, in fact, would confess to having at least prayed one time, right? Whether they know Christ or whether they don't know Christ, people would be like, yeah, I mean, I've prayed at some point in my life, okay? I like what Pastor David Guzik said. He said, it often comes naturally because man was created with a spiritual instinct, so to speak. And he's right. We talked about this Wednesday in our community groups a little bit. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verse 11 tells us that he, meaning God, has put eternity in our heart, right? So even though most of humanity rejects the God of the Bible, they still instinctively know that they can't always help themselves, right? And so they pray for something to someone out there somewhere, right? Who and they hope they can just maybe help them in some particular way when things get tough, okay? But this morning, we're going to talk about a specific way to pray, okay? And that is through persistent prayer, okay? The God of the Bible tells us to pray with persistence to him, right? The God of creation, the one God who is above all of those other little G gods out there, the only God who can both hear and answer our prayers. And so as believers, we don't throw up, quote, thoughts and prayers, right? Someone has sent me uh, good thoughts before, and I was like, I don't do that. I don't even know what that means. How do you send somebody a good thought, right? We're to pray to the God of the Bible, the God of creation who can hear and answer our prayers, right? The Bible does not say the occasional flippant prayers of a lukewarm Christian avails much. That's not what it says. Here's what it does say in James 5.16. The effective, fervent prayers of a righteous man avails much. Amen. So what we're learning is that prayer is a whole lot more like working than it is wishing, okay? And the Bible, of course, has much to say about prayer, that's for sure. In fact, some of you will remember 
that after Jesus drove out the money changers in Luke 19.45, we're not quite there yet. We'll get there soon. But in verse 46, he said, it's written. Like this has been written already. My house is a house of prayer. He was quoting from Isaiah 56.7. Now, Jesus did not say that my house should be a house of prayer. Like I hope it is. It's supposed to be. No. What did he say? It is. My house is a house of prayer. And the other two synoptic gospel writers, Matthew and Mark, they agree. They record it like this, as Jesus saying, my house shall be called a house of prayer. That's Matthew 21, 12 and Mark eleven seventeen. So the deal is Jesus left no room for argument whatsoever as to what the house of God is. Right? The house of God is a house of prayer. Guys, prayer is not some sort of magic wand that we wave toward heaven. It's not a good thought when things get tough. Prayer is a mandate from heaven, right? Prayer is a command that you and I as followers of Christ are to follow and obey at all times. And so in our study this morning, we're going to find out just how we do that, just how the people of God are to pray. But as I've mentioned already, prayer is hard work. It can be very hard work. It takes discipline, right? In the scriptures, we see it compared to labor. It's pretty fascinating, really, when you look into it. Colossians 4.12, Paul says a man, this guy's name was Epaphras, okay? So a man by the name of Epaphras, he was a believer. He was a bondservant or a slave of Christ. And he says that this man always labored fervently, for those in Colossae to stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. Amen. What a great example to follow. Epaphras, our guy, right? What an example of a prayer warrior. He always labored in prayer. His prayers were fervent. I don't know if you know what that word means, but it's where we get our word agonize. So it can be agonizing. It's labor, right? It means to enter a contest, when we pray fervently. It's like contending for a prize in, in like the Olympic games or gymnastics, right? It means to strive in order to obtain something. That's the idea behind this word fervent. So prayer, of course, is something that might seem somewhat natural to most people, but I'm telling you, very few believers are willing to enter into the arena of prayer, the battlefield of prayer, where spiritual battles are fought where spiritual enemies are contended with, where the difficulties and dangers of our life are met with spiritual discipline, and where the will of God is our greatest endeavor, right? The very thing that we're striving and struggling to obtain, the will of God. So at the risk of getting my, ahead of myself here, um, by the way, my apologies for this very long introduction, but the challenge from Christ this morning is get off the sidelines and get in the fight, right? That's what we're going to learn. And the way that he calls us to do that is through the spiritual discipline of persistent prayer, okay? So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to the Gospel of Luke. We're going to be looking at the first eight verses there in Luke 18. But in this passage, Jesus gives us a parable. In fact, about one-third of all of Jesus' teachings were done in parables, and so if you're not familiar with what a parable is, 
A parable is very simply a story that illustrates a truth, okay? More specifically, it's an earthly story that illustrates a spiritual truth. And Jesus, of course, is the master teacher. He used parables a lot, and he actually used a couple of different kinds of parables as well. The first one he used is called the parable of comparison. And this is where we see in like Matthew 13, for example, there's a list of things where Jesus um, starts with the words, the kingdom of heaven is like, okay? And he will use that uh, repeatedly. And so in these parables here, Jesus is telling us stories that will illustrate or compare to the truth about heaven. The other type of parable that he used was called the parable of contrast. And so this type of parable sometimes contrasts the truth that he's illustrating like we're going to see in our parable today, or as is often the case, Christ uses contrasting stories within the parable to illustrate the truth that he's teaching, okay? So in Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 8, Christ is going to use a story about an unjust judge to illustrate what the character of God is not like, all right? So would you pray with me again quickly, and we'll get into the text. We thank you, Lord, for this day. Thank you for the worship that has happened and will happen. We thank you for the word that's before us, that's eternal, that is final and settled. And so we pray, Lord, that you would just give us an understanding of this truth. Help us to not put our opinion in it, but to just take the truth out of it and live by that truth. Lord, would you give us the courage to be able to do that? For it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. So in Luke 18, starting in verse 1, the word of God says, Then he spoke a parable to them that men always ought to pray and not lose heart, saying, There was in a certain city a judge who did not fear God nor regard man. Now there was a widow in that city, and she came to him, saying, Get justice for me from my adversary. And he would not for a while, but afterward he said within himself, Though I do not fear God nor regard man, yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. Verse 6, Then the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge said. And shall God not avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? Now, in my opinion, uh, there is a very clear teaching here that is specific to Israel. Okay? But as I mentioned last week, God is not done with Israel. Right? In context, we're talking about over the last couple of weeks, the great tribulation, which is the time of Jacob's trouble that we see in Jeremiah 30, verse 7. And so in context, in literal context, the widow woman in this passage is a very good representation of Israel. Okay, Israel had committed spiritual adultery, if you will, against God, although in his grace, he continues to bear long with them, verse 7. And of course, one day God will be with them and he will give them peace and security and so on, Jeremiah 30, verse 11. However, in the scriptures, the church is never referred to as a widow. We are the bride. Okay, so the church is referred to as the bride of Christ. But in either case, we're going to see truth in application that works for the church and, of course, Israel as well. <clears throat> Starting in verse 1, then he spoke a parable to them that men always ought to pray and not lose heart. So here we see one of the primary reasons for this parable right away. And that, of course, is that we should always pray. In other words, 
this is the time frame by which Jesus gives us to pray, right? Always. How often do we think of prayer as our greatest need? How often do we think of prayer as our first response, right? Jesus tells us to pray always, and so what does that look like? What does it mean to pray always? I mean, Paul said something very similar over in 1 Thessalonians 5.17 when he said that we are to pray without ceasing. Remember that? How can we do that? Right? I mean, most of us have jobs. Some of us have kids. We all have responsibilities. So how in the world are we to always be in constant prayer? Well, I believe that both Christ and Paul I think what they're teaching here to us is that we need to have a constant attitude of prayer, okay? Because prayer is more about our heart than it is the words we say anyway, right? But we've got to get our mind focused on what's right to condition our heart how to pray, right? So it's about the condition of our heart toward God. And so having said that, then that would mean that the condition of our heart should always be in constant fellowship or, quote, prayer, with God. Okay, now don't get confused here because God does not want us to be in consistent fellowship. He, does, he doesn't ask us to be in consistent prayer with Him, right? No, He wants constant fellowship, constant prayer. You might say, well, what's, what's the difference? Think about it like this consistent fellowship with God could mean that I only pray every other Tuesday. Right? I mean, I could pray one time a month, but still be consistent in that. Right? Yeah, I don't really pray that much, you know, but at least I'm consistent. Okay? I've heard people tell me that, man, you know what, uh, brother, I'm having trouble being consistent in my walk with the Lord. What they really mean is that they're having trouble being constant in their walk with the Lord. And that's a big, big difference, okay? Because I can be consistent in my prayer life if I only pray one time a year, but I do it every year. But I cannot be constant in my prayer life unless I am always praying, right? And that's the point that Christ is teaching us here, okay? Men always ought to pray. So as a follower of Christ, I'm to stay in this constant attitude of prayer in other words, if what I'm doing or what I'm about to do will make me leave my conversation with God, then it's not worth doing, right? Jesus said we should pray and not lose heart. Has anybody ever lost heart when they prayed? I think if we're honest, we would all raise our hand. Like at some point, it's like, man, this has gotten difficult. Maybe I'll just quit praying about this, right? Prayer can be difficult. Pastor Guzik said if prayer were powerless, though, it would be easy, what a great quote. That's so true. But prayer is powerful, right? Not powerless. Therefore, it requires hard work. It requires labor to stay in the fight. But constant prayer, guys, could and should always be encouraging as well, okay? Constant prayer, in all honesty, is a reflection of our faith, right? As we're going to see when we get down to verse 8. And honestly, Discouragement comes when we stop praying. That's when we get the most discouraged, when we give up, when we assume that the answer is no, right? Or whatever excuse we might use to stop praying. But too often the problem is that we think that answered prayer is simply getting what we want from God, right? If we don't get the answer we want, then we get frustrated, we stop praying, etc. We give up. Look, don't fall into that trap. As a believer, do not fall into that trap. Do not falsely believe 
that prayer is all about you, right? Now, the parable we're looking at today is very unique. It's, it's unique to the Gospel of Luke, in fact. And in context, Jesus has been talking about his return, which, of course, is going to happen at the end of the tribulation. So what Jesus is teaching us here is that constant prayer will condition our hearts for his return. Okay, so that people will be ready when he comes, right? The focus will be on him and his kingdom and his will and so on, not on ourselves, not on the things of this world, right? So I can't get distracted. I have to keep my eyes squarely on Christ my Lord. I mean, a lot of trials are going to come between the first and second advent of Christ, right? So he's saying, look, don't lose heart. I'm coming, right? I'm coming for my church in the rapture. And I'm coming to restore Israel after the tribulation, right? And starting in verse 2, Christ illustrates his idea of prayer and faith in this parable of the widow and the unjust judge. Verse 2 saying, there was in a certain city a judge who did not fear God nor regard man. So the judge was a person of authority in this community. Back in the day, they would travel. Okay, so he's not necessarily from this community, but he would bring authority to the community he was in. And so Jesus contrasts the character of this judge with his own son, right? Or with his own character, rather. So the word says that the judge didn't fear God, Uh, nor regard man. Now you look at that and then you look at the contrast and say, what were the two commandments that Jesus did give? You remember those? Love God, love others, right? Those two commands, Matthew 22, verses 33 through uh, 40. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself on these two commandments hang all the law in the prophets. That's right. Love God. Love your neighbor. Jesus said, you shall do these things. And of course, as we see here, the judge had no regard for either of them. Verse three. Now there was a widow in that city and she came to him saying, get justice for me from my adversary. So this lady, of course, was a widow. Did you know that Luke writes more about widows than all of the other gospel writers combined? He had a Real affection for widows, obviously. We see him write some six different times in his gospel about widows. And so that should tell us that obviously our God cares about widows and he instructs his people to take care of them. Again, we see this all throughout scriptures, okay? All throughout the scriptures. And I've got about 10 more references here that I could give you if you want them. Come and see me after the lesson and I'll give them to you. But scripture is full of this idea of God's people taking care of widows. But during this time, especially the widow had no power according to the law. Anyway, I mean, she was helpless. She didn't have a husband there to advocate for her. Right. And so in a sense, you and I are like the widow in this parable, aren't we? Because you and I have no hope apart from the Lord Jesus Christ whatsoever. Christ alone is our advocate Christ alone is the one who stands between our sin and the righteous judgment of God, right? He is our advocate. And so I want you to notice something here about the character of this helpless widow. She did not get easily discouraged. Did you see that? So let's listen to what Christ is teaching because we can learn from this. The widow kept coming back to the judge. She kept coming back to seek justice. She was relentless 
right? And why? Because she knew that he was the only one who could give her that justice, right? So she was persistent in coming to him for that help. But hear this, how much greater is our hope as believers in Jesus Christ? How much greater is our hope in a judge who is just, right? She was coming to an unjust judge. Of course, our judge is utterly just. And so we see the contrast in the parable. As believers, we have the confidence of knowing that our God does hear us, not the 10th time, but the first time that we pray. Our God never grows weary of our prayers, right? You see, the the devil, our adversary, he was defeated at the cross, and, and now Christ is risen, and he sits at the right hand of our God right now, this very day, making intercession for us. That's Romans 8.34. So that word intercession literally means to light upon a person. It means to meet a person for the purpose of conversation. I love that. Guys, your Savior wants to hear from you. He wants to hear from you. He wants to be in that constant conversation with you. Spurgeon said, He is more ready to hear than you are to ask. The sun is not weary of shining, nor the fountain of flowing. Amen. The sun has never gotten tired of coming up in the east and setting in the west. The rivers have never gotten tired of flowing into the sea, right? You get the picture. In other words, God never, ever gets tired of hearing you pray. So keep at it. God never gets tired of hearing your voice. This word came here that we see in verse 3. She came. In the Greek, it's in the imperfect tense. And so what we learn from that is that she kept coming time and again. Okay, she came again and again and again. And so what effect did this have on the judge? We see that in verse four. It says he would not for a while, meaning give give her justice. It took him a little while, right? So the contrast that Jesus draws out between an unjust judge and a righteous God is that God is willing to listen. God does listen always, each and every time that we pray, right? However, this unjust judge, he wasn't moved whatsoever by this widow's situation, not in the least, really. He didn't care about her. He only cared about himself. But again, the contrast here is that God does care for you. God does care for us. Never forget that. Continuing on in verse four, it says, but afterward, he said within himself, though I do not fear God or regard man, And that cracks me up every time I read that, right? I mean, at least the guy was honest. I mean, you have to admit, right? He was very unjust, but at least he was honest. He didn't care about God. He didn't care about other people. He only cared for himself, right? So notice how quickly authority can go to a person's head. We need to be careful. Verse 5, Yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. So, You'll remember that in addressing uh, this concept of Christian conduct, Paul said this in Romans 12, 12. He said, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer. Jesus said in verse one of our, our passage today that men always ought to pray and never lose heart, right? And then in the second half of James five sixteen, a scripture I've already read this morning, he says the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Again, we've talked about what that word fervent means, but it also has an element of heat to it. Okay, so think of it like bubbling water. It's active, it's working, it's bubbling, it's hot. 
Okay, it's moving. It's accomplishing something. It's powerful. So our focus here should be on the persistence of the widow, not on this judge's inability to cope with that persistence, right? So the contrast is that our God does not faint. Our God does not grow weary, Isaiah 40, 28. So please understand this morning that as a believer, you do not trouble your God ever. You do not trouble him, okay? He's not bothered by your prayers or your petitions, not at all. In fact, it's the exact opposite. He delights in them. Listen to this passage of scripture in Psalm 16, 3. It says, as for the saints who are on the earth, us, right? They are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. I love that. What a contrast. This unjust judge was growing weary of this widow's continual coming back to him time and again, right? But of course, our God never does. This phrase, weary me, is very interesting. When you do a study on it, uh, in the original language, it means to beat black and blue. That's what it literally means. So this widow kept coming back to the judge like she was beating him black and blue, right? It means to cause bruises. It's like a boxer. Okay, that's the idea behind that phrase. And so since there's no real threat from the widow that's listed here, right? I mean, Scripture doesn't tell us she's an MMA fighter or Golden Glove boxer, right? So what do we make of this? What, what's it saying? Well, I think this is probably where we get our figurative saying, don't give me a black eye. Maybe you've heard that in the context of someone's reputation. Oh, they gave that person's reputation a black eye. Have you ever heard that said before? I mean, this judge probably thought it was a bad look to have this widow coming back day after day after day. This would not have been a good look for him politically. It wouldn't have been a good look for him socially. In other words, she could have been giving his reputation a black eye, right, in the community. But again, if you look at the contrast, God is not embarrassed of you, right? Jesus Christ hung on a cross for you openly and in public, unashamed of what others might think or say. The word of God tells us that, in fact, Christ was bruised for our iniquities. That's Isaiah 53, 5, right? So Christ wasn't worried about you and me giving his reputation a black eye. Not at all. Your Savior is not ashamed of you. He's not annoyed by you, right? So what we're learning is keep on coming. Keep coming with your prayers to the throne room of God. The point of this parable <clears throat> is not that we must pray constantly in order to convince God to answer us or whatever. No, it's just the opposite of that. The truth is in the contrast. God is eager to answer our prayers. Therefore, that should give us encouragement to keep praying, right? Spurgeon said, too many prayers are like the boy's prayer. The runaway knocks at the door, given, and then the giver is away before the door can be answered. Right, what he's saying is we often pray like the little boy in the neighborhood who runs up to your door and knocks two or three times and runs away and you come to the door and there's nobody there. Right, keep knocking until somebody answers. And that somebody, of course, is our God, right? Don't give up too quick. Keep knocking. Our God is most definitely listening. Verse six, then the Lord said, hear what the unjust judge said. Well, what did he say? Essentially, he said, all right, I'll give her justice. I will avenge her. 
because she's beating me up with her persistence, right? I mean, this judge was reluctant, but eventually he gave in to persistence. And in verse 7, Jesus begins to tell us what God's going to do in regard to the prayers of his people. Look at verse 7. And shall God not avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them? Exactly. God will keep his promise to Israel, right? We're staying in context. But Jesus is saying, if an ungodly judge will give justice to this lowly widow, do you not think that I'm going to give justice to my people? Of course he will. And guess what? He's not going to be unwilling for a while to do it. So the obvious idea here is that you and I, as God's children, we have to be just as persistent in coming to him with our prayers as this widow was in coming to the unjust judge, right? Here's the good news. Here's the promise that we have as believers, as children of God, that God will not delay in bringing justice. Okay, He will not be unwilling to grant it. Verse 8, I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on earth? So please hear the point of this parable, okay? The context of this parable is within the return of Christ, okay? It's within the the fact that his kingdom is coming. And so Jesus is saying, when the Son of Man does come, justice will be swift, okay? He's not saying that I'm coming like El Quico, like in a minute or today, although he certainly could. And we pray that he does, right? I pray that he raptures his church today. We know that that could happen at any moment, but what he's saying is, When I do come, justice will be swift. It will be speedily. In other words, it's not going to take him very long at all, and it'll all be over. Okay? Therefore, when he does get here, after the time of Jacob's trouble, he's saying, will I find the kind of faith from my people that this widow displayed in her persistence with this judge? Will I find that kind of faith, right? So the application here is relevant, uh, obviously, to both the church, or relevant, rather, to the church and Israel, okay? He's asking us a question, and so he's basically putting the ball in our court now. He gives us a parable on prayer in the context of his soon return, and then he ends his teaching with a question. When the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? Right, So he's equating persistent prayer to faith, isn't he? In the form of a question. I love that. He asks the question and he lets it linger. He just lets it sit there. He lets us deal with it. He lets us ponder. He makes us think, right? We talked about renewing our mind earlier. So now I've got to think to myself, do I really have faith? What does that look like? Can I honestly say that my voice is familiar in the throne room of God? Do I pray with constancy? Are all my prayers about me, are they usually selfish or conceited, right? Am I always asking but never listening? Am I merely consistent in my prayer life rather than being constant in my prayer life? Am I truly able to say that I'm constantly in an attitude of prayer and fellowship 
with my Savior. So as to condition my heart for heaven, right? This is in the context of his coming, right? Do I pray with a heart that is longing to see Jesus? That's eagerly watching and waiting for his return. Is that how I pray? Guys, this is the context in which Christ is speaking to us. He's saying, I'm coming. And I'm coming quickly. He said, when, not if, right? So it's definite. And when he gets here, he's looking for something specific. Will he find that? He wants to find real faith when he gets here. That's what he said, right? So what's it going to be? That's the question on the table now. What's it going to be for community church, right? Our Savior has asked us a question. And so now we've got a decision to make. The choice is ours. The choice is yours. It's mine. Okay, all of that is true. So I can give up. I can get discouraged. I can stop praying. I can stop believing or whatever. I can stop persisting. Or I can get on my face and get before my God in faith and keep petitioning him to hear me, to forgive me, to help me, to heal me. And continue to conform me into the person of faith that he wants to find when he gets here. Our Lord wants us to be persistent in our prayer life. He wants constant communication, right? And fellowship with his people. Christ doesn't break fellowship with us, right? We break it with him. And he's saying, be constant in your prayer life. I want to fellowship with you. And so those are the options, right? That's the question. Those are the options. And so my encouragement to you this morning as a faith family, as a body of believers is let's do it. Let's go for it, right? I mean, as a church, let's do this. In your individual life, let's purpose in our heart to be this. These people of faith that Christ is asking to find when he gets here. We can do that, right? He's asking us to do that. So we're going to have to get our eyes off of this world and the troubles of it. These distractions, they all have to go away. And we have to get our eyes squarely on the Lord Jesus Christ and live every moment of our life by faith, looking for his return, right? Guys, let's be found faithful when he comes. Let's let that be our goal, right? And let's pray like he hears every word that we say, because he does. Let's pray like he's coming to take us home today, because he could, right? Some of you remember the story in Daniel chapter 10. Daniel had been mourning and fasting for 21 days. It's three weeks. Finally, God gave him a vision while he was down by the Tigris River. God caused Daniel to fall into a deep sleep and his face was on the ground. And then suddenly a hand touched him and a voice spoke to him, saying this in verses 12 and 13 of Daniel 10. Do not fear, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard. And I've come because of your words. 
but the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. And behold, Michael, one of the chief princes came to help me, for I had been left alone there with the king of Persia. So guys, here's what I want you to hear from that. The very moment you set your heart to understand and you humble yourself before your God, he hears you. He hears you. But did you notice something else about that passage? We're in a battle. We are in a fight, right? Remember what MacArthur said earlier. He said, it's a battle that we're going to lose. Of course, he said this, I think, in the context of referring to the fact that Christians will be persecuted in this world. I agree with that, right? I agree with that. But according to Paul, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places, right? Remember what was going on during the time Daniel was praying? There was a battle going on. God heard him immediately when he set his heart to understand and he humbled himself. God heard him, but there's a fight that's going on in the spirit realm in the heavenly places, right? But we have to remember that the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. That's 1 Corinthians 15, 26. We understand that Christ, through his resurrection from the dead, has already defeated death, already. The word of God says death has been swallowed up in victory, 1 Corinthians 15, 54. Therefore, those of us who are in Christ today by faith, are fighting a battle that has already been won. Already. So MacArthur would say we lose, in a sense. But don't let that get your dauber down. Christ has already won. Amen. Christ won the battle. But yet, the battle continues. There is a fight going on every time you pray. Every time you commune with God. Know that. Right? So set your heart to understand and humble yourself before your God, knowing and believing he hears you. Now let persistence and constancy take over because you're in a fight, right? That's the reality of it here, okay? Every time we pray, it does not make the enemy of our souls very happy, right? So we labor in constant faith-filled, humble prayer, just like Daniel did knowing that our God hears us and that he will answer us, right? But there is a war going on for the souls of men. Make no mistake about that. So I have to consider how faithful am I in this fight? How faithful have I been in this fight? How faithful do I plan to be in this fight? Because at any moment, Christ could come back. At any moment, in the twinkling of an eye, 1 Corinthians 15, 52, the King of kings and the Lord of lords could come and take his church out of here, right? What will he find when he comes? Will he find me fearful, fretting, lazy, disinterested? Or will he find faith? What will he find? When the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? That's the question that Christ has put on the table for you and me today. You see, constant 
persistent, hopeful, heartfelt prayer is evidence of actual faith. That's what we're learning. That's the moral of everything we've said today, right? In order for Christ to find me faithful, then I've got to be in constant relationship with him, in prayer, communing with my God. Because if I'm not, then that's a lack of faith. But if I am, that's evidence of it. It's evidence that I do have faith. Guys, humanity throughout history has always strived for heaven on earth. That's not happening. That's not happening. Okay? That's not what Christ is asking for. Yeah, pray that his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Pray that way. But what's he looking for? What did he say he's looking for? Faith. When the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? We love you, Lord, and we thank you for this time in your word. Thank you for the challenge, Lord, that you've given to us. Thank you for the teaching that you've given to us and how we can express faith through constant prayer, constant communion with you, our advocate to the Father. Thank you, Lord, that even though prayer seems hard at times, it can be difficult. We can lose focus. We can lose track. We can get distracted. We can get discouraged and give up. But even so, we know you hear us. You've promised that. And so I pray, Lord, that you would help us to be like Daniel, to set our heart to understand, to humble ourselves before our God, and get like this widow with our persistence, coming again and again and again. In fact, maybe a better way to say it would be, be just staying there staying in that attitude of prayer, expressing our faith through our prayers. You know our needs. You alone are our advocate. And so we can spend time praying about all kinds of things. We can pray for our neighbor. We can pray for the lost in our community. We don't have to spend all the time asking you to get us out of whatever situation we're in. Of course, we need to pray about that too. But help us, Lord, to focus on those around us, to stand in the gap for them, to lift them up in prayer, to lift one another up as a body of believers in prayer. Because we are in a fight. We certainly don't even know (laughs) the depth of the fight we're in. But we know that in the heavenly places, there's a war going on for the souls of men. And so I pray that we could condition our hearts for this fight. You do not grow weary. You do not faint. And so help us, Lord, and forgive us for the times when we do. And help us to get back up again. Get back on our face. Get in the throne room of heaven. Make our requests known to you. Thank you for that privilege, Lord. You call us to make our requests known to you. How amazing is that? You tell us to approach the throne of grace with boldness. Certainly not because of anything we've done, 
but because you love us and you call us to do that. You call us into communion with yourself. Help us to learn how to pray. And my prayer this morning is that if someone hears this message and doesn't have a relationship with you, they would start with that first prayer, confessing their sin and trusting in you alone by faith to save them. I pray that they would do that today. And Lord, we thank you for what you're doing in the life of Community Church. Thank you for what you're doing in our community. And as we prepare this summer to get out in the community, to be salt and light, to reach people with the gospel of Christ, would you go before us and prepare those hearts to hear the good news of Jesus? Lord, we want to be found faithful when you come. We want to be among those who are faithful so that you will find faith. You really will find faith on earth when you come. We want to be in that crowd. So have your way with us this morning. Whatever step we need to take, whatever sin we need to confess, would you give us the courage to do that? It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.